It is good to see you all again, M many of you anyway. Some of you I got to meet when uh, we were installing uh, Pastor Hershey here uh, at All Souls. Uh, some of you will know that uh, before even Luke came, uh, I had a deep heart connection to this church as my dear friend, one of my dearest friends in the world, Dave Thomas, uh, shepherded here and helped get this church started. And and we're grateful for, uh, I'm grateful for that friendship that I get to continue to have with him. But uh, now with Luke as well, uh, we did get to spend the last few days together and, uh, and praying over each other and, and weeping and laughing together. And uh, we were just a bunch of blubbering fools. It was, it was a great deal of fun. Thank you for letting him get away for a little bit to do that. I uh, hope his heart was encouraged. I know mine was encouraged. To get to love on those guys and to be loved on by them is a gift. Um, and for those of you who are kind of new to Presbyterianism, uh, this is the way it's supposed to be. But the truth is, it's not always this way. Churches kind of can get all focused on themselves and where they're heading. And, and it's incredible to be prayed over, uh, to know that our church is prayed for. And we want you to know your church is prayed for as well. So thank you for that. Thank you for, for the opportunity to just to share this moment with you as we open God's word together. If you haven't already done so, I do want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. I had the privilege of preaching through 1 Peter with our congregation just recently. And so this passage of Scripture in particular is one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the world, which is part of the reason that 1 Peter was chosen uh, for, for our times together. And so for me, though, I thought, why not land in that place where my heart most fully comes alive as I consider what the gospel does and how it impacts us? But really quickly, before I read this passage, just a just a little bit of a background of this book so you can kind of know where we are in this letter. First Peter was written to a group of Christians that were scattered all over what is modern day Turkey. And it was written to a group of people that Peter knew as he looked at, the, at, at what was going on in the world around him as he was in, in Rome at this time, probably in prison for his faith. As he's looking out over the horizon, he's able to see that the world is not going to be friendly to Christianity in the years to come. And true to form, over the next 150 years, even as much as three, 250 years later, the church is going to be persecuted in the Roman Empire. So Peter has a heart as a pastor to remind those people to have their hearts anchored to Jesus in the midst of the storms in the midst of the challenge, in the midst of the difficulties. But that when we do that, the temptation is going to come to get so inward focused that we lose our ability to love. We lose our ability to see outside of ourselves. And so that's where Peter's going to pick up as he thinks about the end of all of this trial and tribulation and how we ought to live in light of it. So here in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, this is God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, Whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength God supplies, 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, as we look into the truth of your word, as we listen to the voice of our great shepherd, we ask that you would stir us, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our ears, that we would respond by faith to the call that you'll have on our lives through your preached word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So it's, we're coming up on the end of April, right? Which means that at least some of you are ridiculously, completely incapable of listening to anything I say because senioritis or end of semesteritis has kicked in. Again, amen? All right. I got to laugh. That was close enough. Senioritis is something that uh, two of my kids now have experienced, and, and uh, another one is a junior, and uh, I'm pretty sure that in high school, that's when senioritis kicks in, about middle of the junior year. Um, pro- I think so in college as well. If you're, if you're going to U of I, then you, you, you certainly are feeling like, I'm ready to be done, I'm ready to get on with my life, I'm ready for grad school, I'm ready for grad school to be done, I'm ready for my PhD to be done, whatever it is. Uh, if you have, in fact, I wanna just, encourage you in your hearts right now to pray for all the parents in the room who are dealing with the fact that their kids, as soon as spring hit, when winter and snow melted away and the, the trees started to bud and the weather got nice, your children became raving lunatics. Am I right? You, did you feel that yourself when spring break hit in this area? I didn't want to be inside anymore. I want to be outside. School's out for summer. Let's, that song is lost on most of you. <laughs> Senioritis, spring fever kind of hits us. The fact is that there's a sort of spring fever, a senioritis in the deep places of our hearts when we deal with the winter of life, the frustrations, the 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 seemingly dead times, the times when it feels like we can't carry on any longer. It feels like everything is piling on top of us. The world seems to be against us. our, Our bills seem to be against us. Our health seems to be against us. Our marriages, our parenting, everything in our world just seems to be collapsing in on itself. And when you feel that kind of tension and that kind of pressure, everything in you wants to just give up. And Peter knows that experience. He felt that. He felt that as he's watching his Savior go from the upper room where they had a meal together out to the, the garden where they, they slept and he prayed. And then from there, the arrest taking him into Jerusalem where he is put on trial and then eventually led to a cross. And through that conversation, through that experience, Peter sees This person that he'd spent the last three years of his life investing in, committed to, confident that this was the coming king who was going to kick out the Romans and get life the way it was supposed to be. And even as Jesus said over and over, my way is to a cross, my way is through my death, Jesus could not hear that truth. He couldn't allow that to be real. And so even when he sees Jesus going 
to the cross and the little girl comes to him and says, weren't you one of his disciples? Jesus's, or Peter's response is, I don't know what you're talking about. And then later, you sure sound like one of those Galileans. No, I don't know what you're saying. And eventually even cursing a person who's accusing him of being with Jesus because he's so collapsed in on himself. All of his hopes and his expectations seem to be lost. He's struggling to figure out how to make sense of his reality. He knows this tension. He knows this sense of senioritis. But then that, after the resurrection, when, when Jesus restores Peter, he's, and then Jesus goes up into heaven, Peter begins another journey of that same process of having to get used to the idea that Jesus isn't here now in his earthly flesh, and I've got to live life. And Peter's heart is to say, for him to be able to live in this world and to be able to get outside of himself and to look, out, to look at people around him and to offer something of himself was going to require his ability to see that Jesus was going to come back someday. That's really the message of this, uh, of this passage of Scripture. You, in fact, I think you guys have, this was a little intimidating, giving you an outline because who knows if I'm going to stick to the outline. No, I'm going to try my best. I think I'll stay with the outline as best as I can. But uh, that outline on the back is, you know, you can just go home now because that's everything I'm going to say. Or if you want to stick around, I'll go ahead and unpack some of what you'll see there. You see, as we deal with the, the, the natural inclination of the human heart, that senioritis, that spiritual spring fever that impacts us, it tends to cause us to look at our present circumstances and in so doing become anxious, hopeless, self-focused, self-protective, and frankly, just plain selfish. So I liked about that, the song that was in your, that was in the extra handout. That song, I think, ought to be the theme song of First Peter. So go, go back through, read First Peter, and then sing that song in, in your personal times with the Lord. I think it'd be a great exercise spiritual, in spiritual growth. But as Christians, even as our present circumstances can get us off track and get our eyes off of where we ought to be, and we can feel that desire to have spiritual spring fever, as Christians, we're called to look to the future so that we can rightly love in the present to the glory of God. So I want to walk that out in those two ways. This idea of, first of all, learning to look eschatologically. Now that may be, I, I suspect it's not a new word to many of you. If you've been around the church for very long, you would have heard about eschatology. This is, we talk about that in terms of the study of the end times. And there's a lot of debate in Christianity within the church about how that's going to look. What's it going to be like? Is there going to be an, a rapture? Is there going to be a seven years of tribulation? Is there going to be something else entirely? And there's all kinds of division within the church. People will choose or unchoose a church depending on how Somebody responds to that answer now. Peter's heart is to simply say this. Uh, you ever heard, you know, you've heard of premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism. I think Peter ultimately would call us to believe, which you've maybe heard this before, panmillennialism. It's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And that hope anchors everything that Peter holds to. And I want to suggest to you, just as we kind of explain and understand what it means to look eschatologically and understand that, first of all, that was the way Peter looked. Peter thought about 
The return of Jesus, the last things, that's what eschatology is referring to, the study of last things. That's what he's talking about and thinking about it all the time. You can't read 1 Peter, and you certainly can't read 2 Peter, without knowing that in his mind he's thinking about the return of Jesus as part of his thought process. And so Peter tends, he just, he's, he's, his whole heart is informed by the end. First Seven, verse 7 of chapter 1, he talks about the return of Jesus. Verse 11 of chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 12. Here in chapter 4, verse 7. Again in chapter 5, verse 4. The entire book of Second Peter is all about the return of Jesus. And in fact, Peter's favorite phrase, uh, phrases would be the day of visitation or the day of his appearing. It was an important aspect of the way that Peter thought about his life. The beginning of the end is near. That's really what Peter means when he says this. The end of time, in a sense, began at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The end began then, and it goes until he comes back again. We are committed, a people committed to the notion that Jesus' return is going to make things right. Do you not feel that? Longing for something better. That the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. That things are broken. That our marriages hurt and they struggle. You deal with children with disabilities. You deal with marriages with disabilities. You deal with job Situations that that are disabled, that are dysfunctioning, that are broken, and you long for a better day. And that's the promise that Peter clings to, that Jesus is going to come back and fix this thing. God is making a definitive stand against evil. He's not abandoning us to this. He's going to come back and clean up the mess that sin has made. This end informs everything that Peter does. But it does more than that. It ought to inform us. It ought to inform a couple of things. It ought to inform our patience. Verse 7, the end is at hand, or the end is near. That gets a little confusing. Let's think about that for a second. I mean, if I said to you a few moments ago, I kind of let the cat out of the bag, Jesus or Peter, when he's referring to Jesus' return, he's, he's using this language of at hand, and, and we might be tempted to think that Peter was mistaken. Peter must have messed up because Jesus didn't come back right away. He didn't come back in, in Peter's lifetime. Jesus refers to his own return. He gives hints at it, and if you read it without reading it with the entirety of Scripture in mind, you might be tempted to think that even Jesus himself made a mistake. In Matthew and in Luke, in particular, Jesus references his own return, that he's going to come back. But this idea of at hand is supposed to bring with it this idea that when we suffer, when we deal with that senioritis, when we deal with the difficulties of this life, we're supposed to look at that end and know that it's coming in just a little while. That's the, that's the kind of picture that he wants to give. A shepherding heart to say, I know it hurts, but just a little longer. That's what he says in verse, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. He says, after you have suffered a little while, 
The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Just a little while. That's, there's, a, there's a longing in our hearts to have this fixed, but the reminder that Jesus is going to come back and this language of it, of it being at hand is meant to give us patience to teach us how to wait just a little more. I know that's a hard thing, especially if those of you who, who may be here that are dealing with things like cancer. And you're dealing with the worst of it or family members that are dealing with it. Or you're watching a family member just slip from this world and you're aching with them. And, and you don't know if you can hang on any longer, if you can go any further. Peter saying Jesus' return is at hand is a way to say, just hang on a little longer. It's meant to strengthen us when it feels hard to, to, to move on. But so the end informs Peter's heart and it informs our patience, but it also ought to inform our prayers. And I love this in, uh, at the end of verse 7 there. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So there's these two words. Sober-minded and self-controlled. Another version calls it alertness and sober-mindedness. It's this idea that when we, in our anxiety, in our fear, in our longing, in our desire for things to be different, to be better, we'll do anything we can to relieve the pain. We'll take a great big Cupful of whatever the world will promise us if it will just satisfy this longing, if it'll get rid of the anxiety, if it'll calm my fear. And so we do that. We, we, for me, it's binge watching television. <laughs> I love Netflix and I hate Netflix. It is an incredible uh, gift in some sense and it has this profound ability to get my eyes off of Jesus in another. And I'm not talking about the shows that I shouldn't be watching. I'm talking about the shows that are okay to watch. I'm talking about the ones that just allow me to be numb when things are hard. So mine's Netflix. Yours might be alcohol. It might be working too many hours. It might be letting your whole world be consumed by how well your kids do in sports or in academics or whatever, whatever your world is. Or your own academics your own athletics, your own music, or whatever other giftings you might have, where you run after anything you can rather than running after Jesus to find your comfort. And so he says, be sober-minded and alert. He's saying, don't get drunk on what this world would offer. Let me just read the way that John Piper paraphrases this. He says, he says like this, if, if he were writing for Peter, he'd say, be sober for prayer. Because the great danger facing us is that we fall in love with this world and become spiritually dull and a day will come upon us like the, the day will come upon us like a thief and we will be destroyed. Oh, pray, brothers, pray for the coming of the kingdom and for your strength to endure and escape the trap of spiritual apathy. Pray that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. He goes on and he says that that's exactly the way he would talk about the coming of the Lord today. It's just around the corner. The end is near indeed. If anyone dallies with sin in the world thinking I have lots of time, he plays the fool. The judge is at the door and the time remaining should be spent in earnest prayer that we not be made drunk and hard by the cares and pleasures of this world. In other words, you're going to find something 
to distract you when the pain comes. Or you're going to find Jesus. And the longing for his return can, can stir you and hold you and keep you moving. Our daughter, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was at my office and my wife came. She, it, was, uh, it was during spring break. And so she was sleeping in. And Jennifer decided to come over to the office and hang out with me. And we were chatting about, I don't remember what we were chatting about. But we were chatting about some things. And all of a sudden, uh, in the middle of our conversation, Jen gets a text from our daughter Katie, uh, who says, where are you? Question mark, exclamation point. She woke up to a quiet house. Our other daughter was sleeping. She would sleep till like three in the afternoon if we let her. This daughter generally gets up at a reasonable hour. And so she wakes up and it's quiet. The dog isn't barking at anybody, everything. So she's starting to get a little nervous. Where are you? And, I, and so she laughed and she read the text to me and I said, text her back and say, it's the rapture. Where are you? Question mark. <laughs> she, uh, she obviously laughed, thankfully. Um, <laughs> didn't cry at that. But uh, she's 16 years old, so I suppose I, she should uh, know that we're full of baloney most of the time. But, so she, so we, but that's the thing. Our daughter, in, in her moment, she feels completely alone, and she's crying out, where are you? Isn't that our heart? When we are in the middle of the junk, we... We cry out, God, where are you? The return of Jesus, the promise of that return, First Peter wants to teach us, the promise of that return is to say, I am here and I'm coming again. And that's hugely important. We need to look eschatologically. Don't just look at the situation right around you. Look beyond the moment. Look beyond your circumstance and see the promise of the Savior that he's coming back. When we do that, it brings us to the second point that, for, that Peter wants to bring up. When we remember Jesus is coming back, when it informs our prayers, and we're able to actually pray out to him and cry out to him in those moments where we feel like we're alone, we, instead of getting drunk on whatever the world might offer, we run to him. But when that happens, when we're able to get outside of ourselves, see the end, it ought to create in us an ability to look around us and say, there are people in my midst that I can love. But not love for love's sake. I love them for God's sake. I love them for God's glory. And that's what we mean when we say it's not only do we look eschatologically, we love doxologically. We love with an eye toward God's glory. That's what we're called to be about. Verses 8 through 11 create this little, this little paragraph, or little thought that begins with this, above, this idea, above all, keep loving one another. But then you get to verse 11, and it says uh, at the end there, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Love is meant to be done in the context of God. We're called to look at the people around us that we might Bring glory to God. And that idea of glory, that, that we get our word doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That word glory, doxa, in the Old Testament was another word. It was this word kavod. It's this idea of weightiness. It's the idea of something is so weighty that it's almost like, it's like a, if it put its foot on my life, it would, it would create an imprint. There would be a footprint 
because the weight had weightiness to it. So when the foot came, comes down, when God enters into my world, when he, when he touches on my life, does he leave an impression? That's the idea of doxology. That's the idea of doxa, of glory, of kavod. It's this idea that if God is in my world, does it change the way I think? Does it change the way I live? Does it change the way I see you? Does it change the way you see me? Because God has this habit of getting in my world and not letting me think that I can live without him. Doxology or or living toward his glory, doxological love, requires that I am moved to the point of it affecting the way that I treat people. You may or may not know a fellow named Casper. Um, Casper lived in the Netherlands and for a, a long season of his life as a believer, he, he did all kinds of ministry when he was young, before he had a family. Uh, he, in fact, worked among poor people with this one ministry that uh, in English was translated for the salvation of the people. Later, he moved back to Harlem where he continued to love on people and give his life away to people, but he started to raise a family and had several children. Among them was this daughter named Cornelia. You may know her better as Corey. And Casper and Corey's last name was Tenboom. Uh, Corey Tenboom, you, if you've ever read the, uh, the story of her experience during World War II in Harlem, living among the Nazi regime's overwhelming, crushing attack on the Jewish people, among others. Corey and her dad would hide Jews in their home. And at one point, she has this little baby, this little Jewish baby, and her pastor comes to visit, and she's talking to the pastor and and tells him what they're doing, that this little child needs protection, needs safety, and she's intending to hide this baby. And, And in her autobiography, autobiography, she references this moment and it and says color drained from the pastor's face he took a step back from me miss tenboom i do hope you're not involved with illegal concealment it's just not safe and then he said think of your father i pulled she says the coverlet back from the baby's face the man bent forward his hand in spite of himself reaching for the tiny fist curled around the blanket. For a moment, I saw compassion and fear struggle in his face. Then he straightened. No, definitely not. We could lose our lives for that Jewish child. Unseen by either of us, she writes, father had appeared in the doorway. Give me the child, he said. So he held the baby close, and and she says that he held him so close that his white beard was brushing against the baby's face. Looking at the little face with eyes as blue and innocent as a baby's can be, he said, you say we could lose our lives for this child? I would consider that the greatest honor that could come to my family. This was a man who understood the weightiness of God impacting the way he would love. If you know the rest of the story, you know Casper Tinboom and Corey and her sister Betsy 
were all going to be in a concentration camp one day when they were found out. And within a few weeks of being in the camp, Casper, the father, died of tuberculosis. Betsy died a few weeks before Corey was released. There's something amazing about when we think in terms of the God of the universe is going to come back and fix this world, how it will impact the way that I can love right now. It has an impact on me. It changes the way love works. And so he, Peter, is going to explain that. He's going to play that out in greater detail as he talks about what this love is really like. He's going to start by talking about what its extent is. Love's extent, verse 8. It says, love, keep loving one another earnestly. Another of your versions, if you have the NIV, it says to love each other deeply, for love covers a multitude of sins. The extent of love, that, that word earnestly or deeply, maybe a better translation, a, a, a translation that really captures the Greek there, is this idea of loving constantly. It's the idea of right when you think you've got no more to give, give more. Right when you think that love has its end, Extend your love a little further. Keep love constant is the way one commentator put it. Being stretched and extended. That's why it says that love covers a multitude of sins. Have you ever been sinned against? If you haven't, you weren't paying attention because they were trying, whoever it was that sinned against you. We've all been wounded. We've all been hurt. We've all been treated as less than. And in that moment, when that sin seemed unbearably sinful and made it seem harder than ever for you to, to stand under it, God said, love more. Love a little longer. Cover that sin. Forgive it. Come close. Love's extent keeps stretching and stretching in depth and endurance. That's what he means when he says that it covers the multitude of sins. Right when you think you've reached the limit of a particular relationship, and I'm guessing right now you've got one in your mind, you think, I don't think I could do that anymore with this person. God says love a little more. But what does that love look like? Peter talks about the extent of that love, constant, stretching, but he also talks about its expression. What does it look like? He, use, he uses this language of grumble-free hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Have you ever shown hospitality? Have you ever had someone kind of understand hospitality means a lot of things. It can mean someone comes and lives with you for an extended or a short period of time. It could be that they just come over to your home for a meal. It could be that they just come over to your home unannounced and you, and you're, and you have to open the door. I had that experience just uh, Friday. I came home. I was anticipating this company to come and look at our roof and then just give me an estimate. They, this was not a company like the other companies that I, that I talked to. This was a company that knew all the best sales techniques. And in the midst of their conversation, after they, this, this guy and his trainee were walking around the building, this, the house, they said, 
Do you have a, a little space at your table that we could use so that we could sit down and work on a few figures and then, and then we'll have our conversation? And in my heart, I'm thinking, no, 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 no. I do not want you coming into my house. I have to clean my house. I'd have to at least clean the, the pathway to the table. Um, I have, my kids have been home all day. It's a mess. No, no. Yes, come on in. And they came in and they sat down and they did their thing. And then I started to realize, um, I walked by and I just saw one number written on his piece of paper as part of the added up number. And that number alone was almost twice what any other bid was. So at this moment, I'm in full on, like, I am ready to just say goodbye to you. But I'd already told him I was a pastor and I, and uh, that, uh, you know, that I was a Christian and I'm like, I've got to love you. <laughs> so I kept swallowing, kept thinking, no, Jesus, you, I can promise you that I have taxed you more than that. I was grumbling, though, in my heart. I was grumbling. And that's what happens whenever we allow someone else to enter into our world. That's what hospitality is. It's to open up the space and let someone draw in close. Let someone come in where it costs. Let someone come in where, where there's an expense to me, whether it's my time or it's my money or it's the food out of my refrigerator or it's the, the, the frantic moment of kind of picking up and making it at least somewhat presentable so that they can have a space to work on their thing and then staying a little longer, stretching a little more to let them then give us a number that there was no way we could afford. And all of that was an opportunity to love. Love is expressed through grumble-free hospitality. If your life is so full that you have no room for others to invade your space, Peter wants you to know as you come to this end, the end of this thing that you're robbing God. You're not just robbing that other person. You're robbing God of His glory. Because you're living life as if it all counted on you. When was the last time you had someone over? When was the last time you wrestled with and allowed yourself to live in discomforts for the sake of another? Where it didn't, while it may have been uncomfortable, it didn't push you to the point of grumbling and eventually just saying no. So understand, it's both bringing them into your world, but then beyond that, also having a heart that's not extremely dejected and frustrated that they're there. Jesus has a way of doing that with the, with the law, you know? You, I think you guys have actually done the Sermon on the Mount series, maybe. I don't remember. I can't, but uh, but that was the, that's what Jesus does. He'll say, oh, you've, you've, you've kept the law, have you? Oh, you haven't ever murdered anybody. Oh, but you thought an awful thought about that person in your heart. Or, oh, you never committed adultery, but you lusted? You've committed adultery in your heart. His point is always to peel back the layers and say, oh, you've shown hospitality. Oh, but you grumbled. <laughs> Here's the thing. I can know love's extent. I can know how God calls me to love and I can know what he calls me to do when I do that. I can walk that out. I can understand that. I can know that in my mind and I can live that out to some degree, but then ultimately I end up coming up short. I end up realizing how hard this is, how seemingly impossible this is, how completely ridiculous it is for God to expect this fool to be able to do that well. 
And Peter understands that. And so he says, of course it's hard. Of course it's impossible. That's why you can't do it on your own. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace or as dispensers of God's grace, as the old New American Standard puts it. You ever eaten from a Pez dispenser? You know what a Pez dispenser is? It's a little piece of plastic and it's got a head on the top of it and you flip the head back and the candy pops out and the most disgusting, gross, terrible candy in the world is ready for you and you pull it out and you eat it. It may feel like that at times when God says, open your mouth and love, open your home and love. And you think whatever I open up is going to come out looking pretty nasty and tasting like Pez candy. Because my sin is all up in that. And yet he says, when you open your mouth, I will dispense grace. More than that, I'll dispense my power, my strength. He says, whoever speaks, or the one who has spoken, speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves is one who's by the strength that God provides. Yes, we know love's extent, and we know love's um, uh, expression, but we have to know love's empowering. It is not from us, it's from Him. He offers it freely, joyfully. He provides it for us. Peter's heart is, is, is to let us know that because Jesus is coming back, He's going to provide every piece of the pie. He's going to give you all you need to accomplish what he's calling you to accomplish, to get your eyes off of self and to get them on other people. He's going to give you the grace you need. He's going to give you the love you need. He's going to provide. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, that's the way Jesus is. The one we're waiting for, that one that's going to come back someday, the one who's coming to set everything white, right, he patiently endured. He patiently endured suffering on our behalf. He did a little bit of reverse hospitality. He entered into our world, but he paid the price. He paid the cost. He provided the way to eternity for us. He took on all the human limitations in the process of doing that, all the weakness. He extended his love to the point of breaking and then stretched further still as he's on that cross and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Grace upon grace, he just kept pouring it out. He offers us the greatest of gifts, an open door into his eternal home. An eternal grumble-free hospitality. That's what Jesus offers. And he did it all by resting in that same power that he calls us to rest in. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul picks up on this same idea of what is it that's going to empower me to love? In Ephesians chapter 3, as he has that moment where he goes into the, he, he had started earlier in the book to say this prayer he was going to pray, and then he got sidetracked, and he comes back to it in chapter 3. And he says that the central prayer of his heart is that we would be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that love 
that surpasses knowledge. Why? Because when you know that love, it frees you to love. Jesus is going to come back someday, and in the meantime, he calls us to love. Peter got it. He got it for his audience. The challenge is simple. Grasp the love of the returning Savior that you can't help with. And the moment you think that you can, you're just robbing God of his glory. Let God do this, and you'll love too. Let me pray for us. Father, as we are called to extend ourselves for others, we're called to love doxologically with an eye towards your glory. We do so as a people who look even more so to your return. Because that gives us hope, confidence, and encouragement to trudge ahead. Help us to love well, even as we look forward to your return, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.